The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Phil Burton Cartledge to discuss the newly formed independent group. We'll be talking about the politics of the MPs that make up the new organisation, the role of anti-Semitism in the resignation of the ex-Labour contingent and how the Labour leadership ought to respond to the creation of the group. As always, you can listen to PTO on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you really like the show, please think about supporting it via Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Phil Burton Cartledge is a lecturer in sociology at the University of Derby. He's currently researching the political crisis of the Conservative Party and he blogs regularly about politics at the blog All That Is Solid. The web address is a very public sociologist.blogspot.com and you can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at philbc3. So on Monday, we saw the resignation of seven Labour MPs and the formation of the independent group, which currently seems to be a sort of holding operation until they form an actual party. Um, Since then, the group's been joined by three former Conservative MPs and a split from Labour had, had seen to be a very long time coming. Why do you think the split has happened now? And were you surprised to see Conservative MPs joining the group? Well, I wasn't at all surprised to see those Conservative MPs uh, joining the group. But the reason why I I suppose we'll go into uh, later on. The timing, I mean, this has been really interesting why they've decided to go now, because, as you know, this centre party idea has been floating around since since it became clear after the 2017 general election that the, the right of the Labour Party weren't going to be making a comeback anytime soon. And so why they have decided now, I'm not entirely sure, because there's been so many false dawns, including a false dawn last Friday as well, when there was a, a rumour did the rounds that Chucker was going to resign and uh, uh, things were moving. And then, of course, nothing happened. And then it came back on Monday and they actually were doing it this time. So I guess part of it is because we're in this strange lull at the moment where the Brexit negotiations are concerned. Because you remember, it wasn't that long ago that every day was a crisis in politics and everything seemed to be happening all at once. And at the moment, it just seems that Theresa May has gone back to Brussels and she's going through the motions of a negotiation, which, of course, she's not really negotiating anything because she knows as well as everyone else does that the EU aren't going to budge on the Irish backstop. But 
for the moment, Westminster land, the, the media that serves politics, isn't terribly interested in what she's doing until she brings it back to the Commons. So I suppose that Chucker and Friends calculated that this kind of window now would be the ideal opportunity to launch their, uh, their not new party, as, um, as Anna Subri calls it. To um, to get maximum exposure, I think that's probably the reason, and also to come also to capitalise on what's been going on as well around Luciana Berger, because I'm sure as listeners are aware, she has been on the receiving end of the most appalling anti-Semitic abuse, some by so-called Labour support, uh, Labour Party supporters, some by uh, people that have got nothing to do with the Labour Party, and this obviously crystallised around the um, the motion coming from Liverpool Wavetree constituency, her former constituency party, suggesting that she was going to vote face a vote of no confidence, which of course blew up um, the situation again, and eventually the activists in Wavertree. Um, climbed down and then she went and uh, deselected herself anyway um so i think that there was an element of there being a lack of stuff going on in the media and also capitalizing on that particular moment so that they could put on their best outraged faces and um, and come out and say you know we're leaving because of of anti-semitism so i think that's what's going on i think that's what's going on here um, I mean, on that question of anti-Semitism, all the Labour MPs who've resigned have, have cited anti-Semitism as a cause. Um, and it's become sort of um, accepted wisdom that Labour hasn't done enough to combat anti-Semitism amongst the membership. And as you say, I mean, there clearly is a, a you know, a, a, a small but significant uh, section of, of Corbyn supporters who, who well, you, you know, some people who, who indulge in anti-Semitism or, and some people who affect to pretend that anti-Semitism doesn't exist on the left at all. But uh, obviously, at the same time, it's rather unconvincing to see somebody like uh, Ian Austin presenting himself as a sort of, uh, you know, a, a lifelong crusader against uh against racism, given his, you know, very sort of appalling rhetoric around migration and, and the tropes of rootless cosmopolitanism that he's indulged in regarding Ed Miliband. Do you think that the Labour leadership ought to have been more forthright in terms of making clear that there were legitimate criticisms of anti-Semitism, there were, there were cases that were real and needed to be, you know, seriously confronted, but that at the same time there were people making, you know, bad faith claims or, or were, you know, weaponizing real instances of anti-Semitism in order to pursue a factional fight. I mean, obviously that's a sort of a difficult line to tread, but do you think they've gone too far in terms of, of conceding the argument? I think I think you're probably I think I would be inclined to agree with that. Um, obviously, I th- there's other concerns that they've got in mind as to why they haven't gone out and talked about people cynically using anti-Semitism as a political football. And one of those is the issue of party management. Mm, I'm sure keeping that, people on side. That's right. Um, the the people that seem really most bothered about the this week's uh, flounce, I, I probably wouldn't call it a split. This week's flounce seem to be John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn. They seem to be the most the ones who are most um, annoyed by and most concerned by what it mean um, by what it could uh, symbolise. So I think that by trying to be conciliatory over anti-Semitism, I think that. I can understand why they've done it. And I think that if they hadn't done that, perhaps they were fearing that a split would have come sooner. 
and other people would have gone citing anti-Semitism and so on. Um, but ultimately, these people, a lot of these people don't actually really care about anti-Semitism. A lot of these people, you just have to look at the anti-racist records of a lot of these people that effectively use anti-Semitism as a political football. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, where, where are these people when it comes to attacks on, on Muslims? Where are these people where, when it comes to anti-black uh, racism and so on? And their records tend to be patchy at best. So that seems to suggest there might be other ulterior motives in mind when it comes to talking up and amplifying instances of anti-Semitism. Again, like like most people do recognise there is an anti-Semitism issue in the Labour Party as there is an anti-Semitism issue in wider society. The Labour Party has got over half a million members. It's always bound to reflect the prejudices and even the racisms of the society in which it is hosted. But at the same time, the Labour Party is the one organisation in British society that seems to be doing more to root out anti-Semitism than anything else. As a number of people have pointed out on Twitter, the Labour Party has adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, and yet the independent group haven't. Why haven't they? Mm, yeah, and I mean, obviously, that was a, a, a key point of contention. You know, there was a huge um, argument about about Labour not implementing it, and uh, you know, I, th- I think the, the signalling that, that came from some people was that if Labour adopt it in full, this will all sort of blow over, and yeah, clearly, that's not not been the case. Well, we know you've got this ridiculous situation where Emmanuel Macron in France, of course, another centrist superhero, has now declared that anti-Zionism is a species of anti-Semitism. It's utter, complete nonsense. You can never appease some of these people. Briefly on the on the, the composition of uh, the independent group, could you say something just on, on, on the motivation of, of, of the conservative uh, members of the group specifically and, and you know, whether it's, it's, it, you feel it's anything much beyond Brexit or is there sort of, you know, harking back to, to the, you know, halcyon days of, of the coalition and, and when, when David Cameron was in charge, whether, whether that should be taken at, at face value? I think it's two-thirds Brexit, one-third Cameroonism, because when you look at the, the MPs who are involved, so Anna Soubry, who, contrary to popular belief, I understand, was not a founding member of the SDP, but I know... Yes, um, I, I discovered that yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> She's, um, what's it, a, a friend of mine um, used to be a barrister around Nottingham and so encountered Anna Soubry many times when she was... Um, as a, a lawyer, as a barrister as well. And she was always known as a, a dyed-in-wool Tory, but also quite a liberal Tory as well. And it is apparently true that back in the day when she was a journalist at Central Television, where she celebrated the famed Central Weekend with uh, Nicky Campbell, that she was the mother of the chapel for the NUJ. So an interesting character with some uh, some contradictions there. And though I was fairly young when Central Weekend was on, I never really had her pegged as a right winger, right wing presenter. She didn't come across as a biased presenter when that was um, when that was running. But but yeah, so someone like Anna Subri, she was a Cameroon true believer. She really believes that she does fit the liberal Tory mould uh, to a T. So you know, single mum and unapologetic about it and people don't care about it, which is a very Cameroon thing. Um, she was, she went along with the Cameron programme. 
She was a very enthusiastic uh, minister. She enthusiastically voted through uh, Osborne's cuts. Um, and all of a sudden, in 2015, she, sorry, in 2016, with the departure of, uh, of Cameron, that um, she suddenly found herself out of sorts in her own party. So before then, she could kind of, in her own mind, I suppose, construct herself as a blazing meteorite of Cameron goodness. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's a flavor of, it was a flavor of the month that no one wanted to chew on anymore. So she went to the back benches and has been there fairly frustrated ever since. Also with Sarah Wollaston and with Heidi Allen, these two are also children of the, the Cameron moment. You remember that Sarah Wollaston was a GP before uh, 2009, where she won an open primary uh, for her for her seat, one of um, Cameron's um, experiments with that format. So she didn't really owe any allegiance to the wider party as a whole. She was someone who just was lucky to be the right place at the right time. Get obviously gave a good primary speech. People voted for her, and I understand that this was a similar story for Heidi Allen as well. She joined um, the Tories again fairly. I think it was around about 2010 2011 she recently gave a talk where she talked about why she decided to join and up until then she she owned um, a a small uh, manufacturing business ran a small manufacturing business and again she she run ran in a in a primary and she got it so it wasn't the case that she worked her way up through the ranks like a number of time service not not someone like eric pickles for example who uh, is kind of an example of that older generation who would have worked their way up through the Tory ranks. So they never really had the kind of a, if you like, a, an attachment, a same sort of like deep rooted attachment to the party, except maybe in, in like, maybe it's slightly different for Anna Subri, but the other two certainly didn't. So I think I'm sure that they found that leaving the party was less of a wrench than it would be for, for many others. It's just a case of, um, because, of course, with someone like Heidi Allen, she's more or less made a name for herself for speaking out on welfare issues and social security cuts. Mm. Since she well, came whilst, whilst voting them through, whilst of course. Of course, we can't uh, uh, do that. And, of course, uh, Sarah Wollaston has also cut a, a character of someone who's um, occasionally concerned about health policy. Not that that ever stopped her from voting for Andrew Lansley's Health and Social Care Act and all the rest that has come with it. But of course, this is a part of a decomposition within the Tory party more generally, which, as you know, is my pet topic um, that under Theresa May, the um, the liberal wing, for want of a better phrase, of the Conservative Party have been completely out of sorts. And you still have members of the so-called liberal wing in, in the cabinet, people like Amber Rudd, people um, like the Chancellor. Um, and you've also had some recent exiles to the back benches as well, people like Justin Greening, for instance. So these aren't people, these are people with clout in the party, but they don't have much of a base in the party anymore. You'll see that both Anna Subri and um, Heidi Allen, um, it was revealed on Conservative Home this week that they had both written to Brandon Lewis, the Tory party chair, begging him to do something about these evil activists that have joined um, their uh, constituency associations and are uh, presumably holding them 
to account. And there's quite an interesting piece that Mark Wallace has written about this today on, on Conservative Home on the infiltration of the Tories by um, Aaron Banks's uh, Leave Means Leave movement. Well, in actual fact, it's not that Leave Means Leave are infiltrating the Tory party. It seems anecdotally, at least according to um, a Tory organiser of my acquaintance, is it seems that with the collapse of, the, of UKIP and with Theresa May's emphasis since she got on the steps of Downing Street in 2016, then over the summer laid out her idea of a hard Brexit, that it's less that new people are coming into the party, but it's old people returning to the party. And also these old people are returning and finding Cameroons like Anna Subri and Heidi Allen talking about people's vote and how Brexit is awful and all the kind, all the rest of it, and then giving them some stick over it. So there is an element of that kind of them not fitting in the party anymore. I suppose on that, um, you know, looking over the, the broader history, I mean, it increasingly looks like Cameronism was an aberration, right? Because it's it's sandwiched between two, you know two long periods of, um, you know, right through the the, the Thatcher years and the major years, the, the party is is pretty socially conservative and and it continues to be so under you know people like William Hague and Ian Duncan Smith, um, and in some ways, it, you know, it, that parallel between uh, Cameron and Blair seems very very apposite, doesn't it? Because in both cases, it seems that in a in a sort of moment of def- desperation, much of the party defers to a leader who seems to have a plausible plan for winning power. And so, for a period of time, they go along with it. But you know, eventually, that ceases, ceases to, to to cut any ice with them. Yeah, I think the key difference, though, between Blairism and Cameronism, if you can call it an ism, is that Blairism, because it had a longer prep time that its transformation of the Labour Party was more thoroughgoing and more people were prepared to go along with it for longer than was the case. Because, you know, David Cameron was you know, elected to Parliament in 2001. He was party leader four years later. And his Cameronism was very, very superficial. I mean, I've recently read a book uh, after Blair by, um, I think it's Kieran O'Hara, who's a Conservative philosopher, and software engineer, bizarrely, but there you go. Um, and in it, he talks about how, um, again, this is in the context of 2005, 2007, that in order to win, um, Cameron doesn't need to necessarily embrace all these liberal nice things, which of course he does, but he needs to emphasise a gentler, nicer conservatism, a kind of conservatism you often find in Roger Scruton's books, for instance. But this every time I've read these kind of these books of conservative philosophy, I think these are wonderful fairy stories because they talk about pr- preserving things and being pragmatic and gentle and not indulging in change for change's sake. Then you compare it to what the actual conservative party has done and is doing. It's they, the two are completely miles apart. We talk about disjunctions of theory and practice. It's, it's quite remarkable. But anyway, yeah, Cameronism was a kind of a... Um, as we know, he talked a good talk about work-life balance and being nice and hugging huskies and taking the environment seriously. And of course, as soon as the 2008 crash happens, Toryism, red in tooth and claw, comes out, except that he adopts a stance of Thatcherite in politics, but socially liberal on social issues, which I suppose in many ways is where our friends, the independent group, more or less sit, because very few of them, even though they... Chucker and friends were quite prepared to vote against austerity. Again, they were also 
the sorts of people that were acting as drags on Ed Miliband during his time in power and in charge of the Labour Party to kind of try and pull it to the right, to accept the cuts, to accept deficit reduction, particularly someone like Chris, uh, Chris Leslie. I mean, obviously, it's very early days and there's no worked out policy platform yet, although it's not entirely obvious that there ever will be one. I mean, you know, if, you, if one takes seriously the rhetoric coming from Anna Subri, um, I don't know if you saw that Newsnight interview she did with Kirsty Walk, where she was, you know, giving it all this sort of, you know, oh, you're, you're living in the old world. We don't do things like that now. We don't think in terms of policies. It's, it's, it's all about values and this kind of kind of stuff. Um, but, but at some point, they will have to have to be pinned down. And to 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 some kind of program. What, what do you expect to see by way of policy? I mean, especially given that in Anna Subri's case, uh, the group has, has welcomed somebody who was a very unapologetic supporter of the austerity program of the of the coalition uh, government. Yeah. Well, to be honest, when I look at the people who have left the Labour Party to join the independent group, these aren't exactly the names that you would associate with anti-austerity politics in the Labour Party either, especially Chris Leslie and his um, um, his absurd views on, when, well, his absurd tenure as shadow chancellor briefly after the 2015 general election and his obsession with Waitrose and Marks and Sparks people and, and so on and so forth. Um, but handily, he did write a pamphlet not long ago. He wrote it snappily entitled The Centre Ground. And in it, it's just basically a technocrat's um, programme for government. It talks about the, the mixed economy. It talks about good governance, um, sound uh, making sure that taxes are low um, or competitive, making sure that there's nice work-life balance. There's there's a lot of thing in lots of things in that um, document that no one could really, to be honest, disagree with. It was a document that was all things to all people, but it wasn't what I would call a populist document by any stretch. It was just um, kind of as if a manager had come along to write a document that was designed to appeal to as many people as possible on the lowest possible common denominator without us offending as fewer people as possible as well. So when it comes down to their politics, when they finally do emerge, it's going to be interesting for, for two reasons. Firstly, how they manage to negotiate the small degree of tensions that already exist within them between, as you say, Anna Subri and her championing of Osbornomics. And, and what the rest think. I don't think there's going to be much tension there, to be honest. But also what their position on Britain after Brexit is going to be, because it's all very well forming an anti-Brexit party. But after March 29th or whenever we do finally leave the European Union, because I don't believe that we are going to see a reversal of Brexit, what role does this party have then? Is it going to be a party that advocates a ever closer relationship with the European Union? Is it going to be a party whose um, idea of a trade deal with the European Union is one that hugs the UK close? Well, if that is the case, that's the Labour Party position. And so what have they got distinctly that can stand out? I mean, I suppose they could campaign for another referendum to return us to the European Union. But of course, that's going to be a non-starter, what with um, new condition, new entrants having to adopt the euro and so on and so forth. So I think they're going to be in a bit of a quandary around how to define themselves. The only things they've defined themselves 
around at the moment is what they're against. And what they're against is is politics in the Theresa May mould and politics in the Jeremy Corbyn mould. They define themselves against left and right without actually specifying what they stand for. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if, if um, I mean, I was listening recently to the, the Nate Silver podcast in, in the US, I think it was 548 or it's called or something like that. They were discussing the prospects of, of Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries. And one argument that they were making, which, you know, has a certain plausibility to it, is that with the election of Trump, you know, you've had a sort of um, an outsider president, uh, you've blown the system up. And now people will think, well, let's let it's time to hand the ball back to the grown-ups. You know, we, we can't really, you know, go go with another sort of outsider like Bernie Sanders, who's obviously you know politically completely different, but nonetheless a you know an anti-system politician in some sense. And and I, I wonder if 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 that's part of the thinking. I mean, I suppose the other. Uh, possibility is that they don't really aim for mass appeal. I mean, uh, Jeremy Gilbert's been making this argument that really what this is aimed at is creating, you know, a small party that can can operate as a sort of spoiling mechanism that will will discipline the other two parties by taking a, a position a bit like the, the DUP, where uh, they they provide uh, confidence and supply with with certain um, conditions. Um, I, I don't know what you think about about all of that. Yeah, I think that that's probably what they're they're aiming for because they're not so blinkered to believe that they can displace either the Labour Party or the Tory Party. Though in the in the long term, I'm sure that they might harbour fantasies of doing so. Uh, but yeah, I think they they see themselves as a small party formation that would be a kind of a power broker, and it will engage in some kind of a relationship with the Liberal Democrats that will be, as you say, be able to um, discipline the other two parties. Um, but also what we've got to remember, too, is that of these MPs that have resigned, so Mike Gapes and Anne Coffey are coming up to retirement age. And in fact, Mike Gapes had already announced about, I think it was about six months ago, that he wasn't going to stand again as a Labour candidate. So he's looking for retirement. So he's he he hasn't got anything to lose. And I doubt Anne Coffey has either. So that leaves other MPs. So someone like Chucker, for example, who's only 40. Someone like uh, Luciana Berger, who's 38. They've still got their careers in front of them. What are they going to do? Do they really want to be dumped outside of Parliament? Do they really want to, um, you know, be on the fringes of things? I don't I don't think they do. And this is the problem that other MPs are going to have if they pop on over as well, because I imagine that those of them who still got something of a career in front of them would like to continue to have a career in front of them. When I look at the Labour benches, I look at them and I think, how many of them outside of politics right now would be in a 70 grand plus job? And with all the benefits and all the status that comes with being a member of parliament, and very few of them would be. And so you, they've got so there's those career elements, those career that career mindedness is definitely there. I think that in the case of Chucker, I think Chucker thinks that he's a national figure. Well, yeah, this is what I, I'm inclined to think. I mean, I, 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 you know, maybe it's unfair, but I, I, I tend to view Chucker as such a narcissist that I think he probably does believe he's, he's Macron or, or Justin Trudeau or something like this. Well, the um, what the um, old progress when my former boss was in the um, in the Commons. For for listeners who don't know, I used to work for Tristram Hunt many moons ago. <laughs> yeah, it's um, 
It's a cross. That's it. You're not coming back on, <laughs> Phil. <laughs> Terrible business. You know, I was poor. I needed money. Anyway, <laughs> um, but, it, but it was an interesting eye opener. And there's loads of posts on my blog, kids, about my time with Tristram. If you really want to read about, it. but <laughs> never. You've not been hiding it. No, I haven't been hiding it under a bushel. Although, However, um, curiously, this is the first time I'm hearing about it. But but do carry on. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about it after. Um, <laughs> and um, the um, amongst the progress members and the progress coterie in the Commons, they used to nickname Chucker Chucker Obama because of the nature of his narcissism. So I think that he does think that he's a national figure, and. And I suppose in a way he is because he does get a great deal of media exposure and he is a, he is a, a favourite amongst the chattering classes. But whether he could actually win a seat on a, off the back of his own individual brand is... I'm, I'm doubtful. Undoubtedly, he does have a personal following in Streatham where he sits on a huge majority, which I can't remember at the moment. But if he was to stand as an independent in Streatham, against the full might of the, Labour, of the London Labour machine, would he win? I doubt it. Would he be able to get in somewhere else in another seat? Mm, it's, it's doubtful. Would he be able to get in as a Liberal, can, Liberal Democrat candidate in a winnable Lib Dem seat or a Lib Dem target? Possibly. Or if he could go in as a centre party, for want of a better phrase, candidate for a, um, a Lib Dem target seat, which they would give over to him, he could possibly do that. But he he is a kind of a prisoner of his own legend, I'm, I'm afraid. But, you know, he had a career outside of Parliament as a lawyer before he entered Parliament. Plus, he's now earning ten, tens and tens of thousands of pounds a year for chairing the uh, Progressive Centre UK think tank. So he'll be all right outside of Parliament if he is ever dumped out of it. It's people like you know, what's going to happen to someone like Luciana Berger if she gets dumped out of Parliament? Happens to someone like Chris Leslie if he gets dumped out of Parliament? You know, and uh, what happens to Angela Smith or Joan Ryan if they get dumped out of Parliament? It's very hard to see. We'd possibly not work in the media in, in Angela Smith's case. <laughs> so, I mean, in, in terms of the, the response of, of the Labour leadership to this situation, so two of the most widely shared analyses of, of, of what's happened uh, are articles by, by Jeremy Gilbert, who I, who I mentioned earlier, um, in Open Democracy, and, and Paul Mason in The New Statesman. Um, and, I mean, the argument that, that Paul Mason makes is that the Labour leadership should basically seek to try and limit the split as much as possible by effectively taking a, a pretty small-c conservative stance on national security, you know, making much more sort of belligerent noises with regard to, to, to Russia and, um, and, and, and Syria and so on. Whereas in contrast, Jeremy Gilbert makes the, the, the quite interesting argument that the, the, the Labour right uh, is no longer ideologically distinct from the Blairite wing of the party and that you, there's in fact no way of actually getting them on board. And he, he roots that in, in, the, in the claim that because the sector of industrial capital that the old Labour right used to be allied with barely exists in 2019, um, it, it, it's, it, it's therefore, it just sort of defers to finance capital in the same way that the, the, the Blairites do. So, I, I mean, his argument is that instead of trying to, to win over um, the right of the party, that the leadership should basically accept that it's impossible to hold, to hold the party together and that it should instead seek alliances with parties and movements outside of Labour, such as the Greens, the SNP and Plaid Cymru. 
um, in order to build a, a sort of broad coalition that could actually wield power um, because he doesn't believe that, you know, a sort of a, a, a purer, uh, ideologically purer Labour Party on its own could could actually win a majority. Um, what do you make of those two two arguments? Where would your sympathies lie? And would, and would you would you um, agree with one or the other or, or, or neither? A bit of neither, I think. Um, I'm quite attracted to uh, to Jeremy's argument about the kind of the nature of the Labour right. But I think I think he has kind of underplayed that there is a difference amongst the Labour right. Um, um, the old Labour right, as uh, as Jeremy argues, he used that they allied themselves with industrial capital. That's true to a degree, but it also had very had a very material had material roots in the practice of the the trade union movement, and this would be the one that goes well well back to when the labor movement was founded and before where trade unions were um, and trade union activity was the daily grind of the guerrilla struggle against the employer of getting an improvement here at work here a little bit of autonomy over a bit of work there getting a pay rise here ensuring that that instant dismissal over there was uh, overlooked and that person was able to reinstate themselves and this sort of lends itself to a degree of pragmatism which of course lends itself to constitutional politics further down the road as well this is how so many labor mps were able to come up through the trade union movement not necessarily because they were councillors and knew how the committee system worked but it's because they emphasize they learned the virtues of patience and plodding and uh, going for little improvements here and little improvements there at the work uh, in the workplace in their confrontations or with negotiations with employers and this persisted right down to the 1980s where um, when you read like John Golding's book for example uh, Hammer of the Left required reading for anyone in the Labour Party even though it is pretty turgid in, in places but it's um, but in that you get a real sense that if you like, the kind of radical demands that the left were making in the 1980s were would scare the horses. And it's our job just to plod on and just keep delivering Labour governments and doing incremental improvements here and there. Now, the thing is with the Labour right, this tradition has very, very deep roots, especially here where I'm sitting in, in, the, in the West Midlands. And this is the basis of, of Labour first and, and so on. And so while the manufacturing industry has largely withered away in the West Midlands, up until fairly recently, that base within the Labour Party remained. It was a residual base, but because it had run the the region for so long, in, I was speaking to a senior official in the Labour Party the other day, he reckoned that this kind of old Labour right had effectively run the region, this region of the Labour Party since its inception. So we're talking well over 100 years. And they were the ones that controlled the bureaucracy. They were the ones that stitched selection meetings. These were the ones who ensured that the right people were selected to the right um, positions within the Labour Party and so on. So they they still have, and also this, this faction of the Labour right also has a deep affinity to the Labour Party as well. They see it as their property and they still see it as their property as well. 
Now, this is the kind of wing that from which Ian Austin has emerged. So in a way, I was a little bit surprised that he decided to to resign because in terms of like the, the factional constellation in the West Midlands, he was always in with the the old trade union, the old Labour right bureaucracy that involved other well-known right-wing Labour MPs like Austin Mitchell and John Speller. And he was part of that. And he, as far as I was, knew, he was still kind of part of their little coterie. So I imagine that they're not too happy that he's decided to depart either. Uh, but they're kind of the, the MPs, the members that are still associated with that Labour right. They're not going anywhere. I, 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 I would be very, very surprised if someone like John Speller was to throw his toys out the pram and do a flounce. I can't see it myself. Um, like I said, because they think that it's their property and they're quite happy to sit tight and let the storm of Corbynism roll over them and believe that tomorrow will be a sunnier day in which they can kind of come out of the shadows and take power again. Now, on the kind of issue of going to the left further, like as Jeremy advocates, you know, just forgetting the Labour right and kind of striking deals with the Greens and so on. Well, I mean, to be honest, the Greens don't bring a great deal to the table, if we're if we're brutally honest. They've got, I think, they're in the region of 40,000 members now. Uh, Vote-wise, they regularly poll around the 1-2% mark, which, of course, may make a difference in some constituencies. And it certainly did in Derby North, where which I'm familiar with. But I suppose the, the electorally more significant would be would be the SNP, wouldn't it? And, and yeah. implied, I suppose, to, to a lesser degree. Yeah, but I think the problem is with going for the SNP is I don't know what if Jeremy paid much attention to the 2015 general election, but that was very successfully weaponised against the Labour Party, the idea that Ed Miliband would go into a coalition with the SNP. Now, the Tories tried it again in 2017 but it failed but that's because other issues were salient but i do think there is a a level amongst the amongst english voters i get a sense that there is a level of annoyance at the scottish national party it's not a kind of a it's it's not like a visceral hatred or anything but it's a kind of um a sort of you, you stick a, to your domain and and yeah yeah it's an antipathy they don't like some you know they have nicola sturgeon come on television and people hear her and she's seen, all she ever seems to um talk about is independence and independence is the be all and end all and so for some they might just say sod off them but for for another layer of voters and particularly labor voters older labor voters who are still quite unionist in, in many ways that would be quite toxic to them, any kind of formal alliance or formal uh, lash up with them. I mean, confidence and supply in the Commons is something different. But if we were to kind of reach out the hand of friendship to the SNP, it wouldn't wash. Plus, I don't think the SNP would want it. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon is very good at talking this kind of thing up. But there's an awful lot of people in the SNP who viscerally hate Scot- uh, Scottish Labour and for a variety of fairly good reasons in my opinion um, and so it's a kind of a, it will be a risk for her as well so ultimately I think that we need to just 
let Scotland do its own thing in terms of Westminster campaigning. And the Labour Party needs to concentrate on England and Wales and winning over Tory voters, Lib Dem voters and turning out large numbers of people that haven't voted previously to effectively try and swamp the votes of the other parties in England. And that's the route to which we will uh, come to power again. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.